Last week we looked at 1 Peter 1, 13-16, and uh, we saw there that the path to true safety, being right with God even in the midst of persecution, is as we prepare to... Uh, remembering what's true about Jesus and what he's done on our behalf, helping us to overcome being conformed to the lust that we used to be characterized by before we knew God, and being called to a life of holiness that is pleasing to God. And all this in the context of persecution, when it seems like holiness and whether we're pleasing God is one of the last things that we should be uh, concerned about, because it seems like there would be far more pressing concerns And yet, that is what Peter called his audience to. Today, ask yourself this. Is God my Father? Is God my Father? If you call God Father, which we see in 1 Peter 1, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and even verse 15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy in all your behavior. If you call that God who is described here Father, then here is what these verses are calling you to. Children of God, live in fear. Children of God, live in fear. I say that to you and you probably say, well, what about the verses that say we're not supposed to live in fear? What about those? Perfect love casts out fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, and perhaps a whole bunch of other ones come to mind. Peter is actually agreeing with them. Here's what Peter means. We don't fear punishment. The verse where it says, perfect love casts out fear, the context says, it casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And so the fear that is spoken of in that verse is not uh, fear of God, but fear of being punished for our sin. And to the extent that our sins are forgiven and we're in right relationship with those around us, we don't have to fear punishment for the sins that we have committed, and we don't have to fear punishment because if we're doing the right thing, we don't have to expect that God will punish us for doing the right thing. The verse that says God has not given us a spirit of fear is said in the context of persecution. Paul says shortly after that to Timothy, So do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, join me in suffering. So God has not given us a spirit of fear in which we must fear persecution, but one in which we can embrace persecution even as we follow after him. We can embrace suffering. So why should we, why do we not fear punishment? Why do we not fear other people, including the persecution that they can bring? Why do we not even fear things like death itself, which is talked about in Romans 8, among other places? Because we are to fear God instead. This theme runs throughout the Bible. When we set Peter's words in the context of the rest of Scripture, when he says in verse 17, conduct yourselves in fear, When we set that in the context of passages that say things like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man, we see that Peter is picking up on a theme that runs throughout the entirety of Scripture. He's not saying something different than the rest of the Bible says. 
he's calling, I believe, his Jewish audience to remember all the things that they know of what God has said before. Don't be afraid because I am with you, but fear me because I am your God. If we were to summarize the message of all these things, Peter's reminding them of these truths. And so, if God is your Father, you must fear Him. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear. Why should you fear God? We'll come back to verse 17. But he gives several reasons here in verses 18 through 21. First of all, fear God because your redemption is precious. Fear God because your redemption is precious. You were not bought with silver and gold with perish. He says you were redeemed. You were bought out of sin, the first part of verse 18. But you were not redeemed with silver and gold that don't last. Think back to verse 7. The proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable. Gold is valuable. But here's the problem with gold. It can be stolen. It can be melted down. You can die. Gold doesn't help you in any of those circumstances, right? Uh, Gold has its value. It has its uses. But there are a lot of things that gold cannot do for you. There are a lot of things that it fails at. And however valuable we might see it to be, Peter is saying the redemption that you have received is not merely set in terms of money. And this is important because there's a lot of people who have in their minds this idea that salvation is something that we can buy. But if, if Peter is saying, here is one of the most valuable things you can think of, silver and gold, and if he says your salvation is more valuable than that, the implication is you can't buy it by any means available to you. So you are not bought, if you know Jesus, with silver and gold which perish. What were you redeemed from? What were you redeemed out of? Uh, Without getting all the technical aspects of this, I think it's important for us to remember that the redemption that is involved is a payment that is made to God that in turn releases you from service to Satan. The reason that that wording is important is because there's people who have a concept of what Jesus accomplished in his sacrifice for sin that is as though God was coming to Satan and saying, hey, I'll give you 50 bucks and then you have to let them go. God is not paying a ransom to Satan in what Jesus does. Jesus is paying the debt that we owe to God on our behalf which then in turn frees us from the service to Satan, because in reality, Satan's only power over us is not that he owns us, because he didn't make us, we don't belong to him in that sense, we were made by God and owned by God in that sense. The only hold that Satan has is because of our sin. So if Jesus pays on our behalf the debt owed to God for our sin, Satan has no claim to us. And so it is a kind of redemption, but it's not one for one the kind of redemption that we see in other places in Scripture. So uh, in the book of Hosea that we were just looking at in the Sunday school hour, Hosea goes and appears to redeem his wife out of a 
kind of slavery that she is in because she's been committing adultery with other men. And she gets herself entrapped and indebted and in slavery. And Hosea goes and buys her out of that slavery. But Hosea is paying the person who owns her, in this case, a sinner. And so it's not a one-for-one illustration, and yet it shows the redemption that God provides. How does this redemption take place for us in connection with Jesus? It's not through silver and gold which perish. Instead, you are bought with the precious blood of Christ. Christ's blood was precious because he was without sin. Verse 19, it says, As of a lamb unblemished and spotless. Why did it have to be an unblemished and a spotless lamb? Well, going back to all of the sacrificial system that God established, God told the people of Israel, I don't want you bringing your leftovers to me in worship. Don't bring me the lame and the sick and the, all of the, the animal that the wolf attacked or the lion tore up part of or something like that, the one that you don't like the color of, the one that, all, the one that you find some defect in. Don't see your worship to me as an opportunity to get rid of the animals that you didn't really want anyway. This is something that is costly. Jesus in his person is unblemished and spotless. And so for God to offer Jesus not just the best of what he had, but all of what he had, his only son, is also a costly thing. And Christ's blood is precious because he is without sin and because he is the only begotten son of God. He's the only perfect sacrifice. Christ's blood is also precious because in Christ all of God's promises are fulfilled. God is bringing about the salvation that his people could not provide for themselves. Think back to the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is about to sacrifice his son Isaac. God provides the ram that's caught in the thicket in place of Isaac. Jesus is the one who comes in place of sinners. His life for our lives. Think about the book of Isaiah. God looks around and says, who is there to accomplish salvation? And the answer is no one. And so God steps in and provides the salvation that we need that only he can give to us. It's important to remember that when it says, with precious blood, verse 19, uh, this is not the kind of strange idea that some people have put forward that says that there is something magical or unique about Jesus' blood, that it is divine blood, or something like that. The reason that that is important is to the extent that Jesus had something different about his blood that makes the blood itself have properties that are almost magical in the way that they're described, he is no longer fully human. Because that's not true of any human being. Now, are there aspects of Jesus in his resurrection body that are things that are puzzling to us in some of the descriptions at the end of the Gospels? Yes. But there's a difference between that and saying that in his earthly life, prior to his resurrection, there was something magical or unique about his blood that it was sort of infused with divine power or something like that. That's not at all what is in view here. It is precious not because of the qualities of the blood itself, but because of who it belongs to. It belongs to Jesus as the only sinless one. It belongs to Jesus who is the fulfillment of all of God's promises of the Messiah who would come and save his people. 
We should fear God because redemption is precious, but we should also fear God because Christ has appeared now so that you will trust in God alone. Christ is eternal, but he has appeared in this time. Look at verse 20. God knew Jesus as his son from eternity. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And this ties in as well with his plan for redemption. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 say that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Or even Peter's own words, when it says that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. 1 Peter 1, verse 2. If God purposed before the foundation of the world to accomplish redemption, and if Jesus is the one through whom that redemption would be accomplished, then this is a plan a long time in the unfolding. Christ is eternal. He does not have a beginning point, contrary to cults that would say he is the, the first and highest of the created beings. Jesus has no starting point because he is, in fact, God. And so God knows Jesus as his son from eternity. And then there is this plan of redemption that the God had also conceived of in accomplishing on our behalf. And people argue about the specific logical order of those things. And that's not really something I want to get into too much because the point is not necessarily the order of all those sorts of things or trying to understand things that when you start to say things like from a point in eternity for a God who is outside time this plan was conceived it it begins to approach things that you and I have no ability to really understand the fact is God said I'm going to do this the the timing of when he purposed that he was going to do this is in eternity, but it's apart from any reference of time that we can understand. It's before we even began to exist. It's before even the world began to exist. That's how long it has been established. God exists in eternity and then creates the world. And for the inhabitants of the world, for the universe itself, time begins, but God still stands apart from and above that. And so this is, I think, one of the challenges when we think about something like the nature of salvation. Because if God is apart from time and above time, but he's communicating to us as people who only experience life in the context of time, that's why we see these phrases like, before the foundation of the world. So from our perspective, here is something that is past. If we look from the perspective of time at salvation, the mere fact that God intended that it would be experienced by us does not mean that it's actually true for us until the point at which it's carried out. In other words, there are people who say, well, God intended to save people, so from God's perspective, they're saved, so... We don't need to share the gospel, or we can just sort of assume that we're all right with God. 
And that's twisting what is said here in a way that is misleading. Paul says salvation is certain. Peter says there's this confident hope that you can have. But just because it is a certain hope, you're seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places, and just because it's a confident hope on the basis of all these great works that Jesus has accomplished, doesn't mean that there isn't something that still has to happen here and now in the present day. So each of us is born, grows up to a particular point in our lives, hears the message of the gospel, and by God's grace comes to believe it. From that point in which you and I believe and begin to trust in Jesus, that is the point at which in time, it says in verse 20, has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who are believers in God. That's the point from which that is true in our daily experience. Jesus appeared to bring salvation. There's a parallel passage, I think, in the book of Galatians where Paul describes it this way. He says, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So there is... All of this anticipation in the prophets, starting all the way back in the book of Genesis, that builds and builds and builds until the fullness of time, the moment in which Jesus is actually revealed. And so even though salvation is on the basis of Jesus and what he does, those events don't take place until that moment in history. And even though our salvation is a real and certain thing, if God says, I'm going to save so-and-so, it is going to happen there has to be a specific moment in time in which that person comes to trust in God, which is the next thing that Peter talks about. Christ is eternal, yet he has appeared in this time. Christ has appeared to bring you to faith in God. Verse 21, you believe in God through Jesus. Verse 21, who through him are believers in God. Listen to two verses from the book of John. In John 1, verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Apart from the coming of Jesus, you and I could not really and truly know God. And so when it says in uh, 1 Peter 1, 21, Through Him are believers in God, Jesus comes to reveal God so that we would then Trust in God. And this is important because another familiar verse, John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The coming of Jesus was necessary to reveal God because Jesus is the only way to God. Acts 4.12 says it this way, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so, through Jesus, we have salvation from God. You believe in God through Jesus. But you believe in God alone because of God's resurrection power shown in Jesus. Verse 21, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. This ties also, I think, very closely 
to what it says in Ephesians 1, 18-21, where it says, Paul prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So you believe in God alone ultimately because of God's resurrection power shown in Jesus. Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no resurrection, what's the point of believing in a dead God? No point whatsoever. Waste of time. Forget about it. Go find something else to do with your life. If we have believed in Jesus in this life only, we are of all men most miserable, most to be pitied. Because we've been wasting our time and we've been lying to a lot of people. But since Jesus is raised, you believe in God. Since Jesus is raised, the same power of resurrection that worked in Jesus will also work in you. Since Jesus is raised, because he is raised and glorified, you trust in God. Verse 21, so that your faith and hope are in God. If we turn to Peter's own words in Acts chapter 2, he illustrates it this way. Starting in verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Their response, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter's gospel message to a very similar audience to the one that he's writing his book to, was this. David said some things about the resurrection. You know who died? David died. You know who died and didn't stay dead? Jesus. And so if Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead, if God raised him from the dead, then God's promises are fulfilled in him, and you should believe in God. Christ appeared to bring you to faith in God, This would not be possible apart from his resurrection. This would not be possible apart from his having come to the earth in the time in which God revealed him. So fear God because your redemption is precious. Not silver and gold, but the blood of the only perfect Son of God. Fear God because Christ appeared in the necessary way to bring you salvation so that you would trust in God alone. But there's a couple of phrases that we've skipped over here. The one who impartially judges according to each one's work, in verse 17. And from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. 
Our lives are characterized apart from trust in Jesus by futility and emptiness and vanity. We looked at this in Sunday school, Hosea 3 and 4. People of Israel, what do you do? You go worship wooden idols. You devote yourselves to assorted kinds of sins, lying and stealing and cheating and murder and adultery and all of these sorts of things. You devote yourself to sin. You worship sticks and empty gods that you've conceived in your own mind, which is stupid because how could something that you've made help you at all? It cannot. The reason you worship it is because it can't help you because you can control it. But the fact of you worshiping something that you can control that can't help you is complete and utter stupidity because if it can't help you and you can control it, what sort of a God is it? This is the empty and futile way of life inherited from their forefathers. Whether it is the kind of idolatry that characterized the Israelites in the Old Testament, borrowing other nations' foolish gods, whether it's the kind of hypocritical self-worship that we see in the New Testament, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees exalted themselves and said, we will set the rules, not God, and, and we will write all the things that people are supposed to follow, and we will ultimately trust in ourselves and what we are doing instead of God and what he's provided in our place, whichever kind of idolatry it is, borrowing pagan gods, worshiping yourself, it's an empty and futile way of life. And it doesn't matter that it got passed down to you from people that you love and respect who came before you. Sometimes we are excited about things that we inherit. Maybe you find um, some object that belonged to someone you care about. I was uh, visiting my grandma back in August, and I found, um, actually it was back in May when I found this, I found some of my grandpa's old Bibles that had his notes written in, in them. That's something that was passed down to me indirectly from him. But Peter is not really thinking about objects so much as he is the way that you do things. And so, let's say that instead of it being a Bible, let's say that it's just something that my grandpa said to me. Let's say he said to me, the way to happiness is just working really hard, and you only have one chance at this world, so make the most of it. And he mentioned nothing about God. That'd be something that was passed down to me. But it would be empty and it would be futile to the extent that it didn't acknowledge God and didn't point me to the truth about who God is. And so the fact that it came from my grandpa, whom I loved and respected, doesn't matter. And this is one of the difficult things if you didn't grow up in a Christian home or even if you did and you were taught things that were contrary to the Bible, uh, we get passed down ideas and ways of doing things and it's hard for us to set them aside because of our relationship with the people who gave them to us, who taught them to us. And Peter says, just because you got this passed down to you from those who came before you, you can't say, well, we've got to keep pushing it forward. We have to keep these traditions. We have to keep following them. Because to the extent that they were trusting in the law, they were condemned because they weren't trusting in Christ and what he had done. And to the extent that they were worshiping potentially pagan gods, that's no way to God either because God said, you can't come to me in the way that you come to idols. I'm not, I'm not a false god to be worshipped whenever you feel like, in the way that you feel like. 
So there's this empty way of life that was passed down. Peter says, instead of this, that's going to crumble and decay and lead you to destruction, God has provided for you this, the precious blood of Christ. And God has provided you the precious blood of Christ so that you will trust in God only. Because what happens is, if you trust in things that are passed down to you from forefathers, what do you do? You get proud. We are the so-and-sos and we do blank. And so people should respect us. And what do you have over here? I got nothing. So I need everything that God offers me. And I believe in God only, not in myself at all. So Peter is saying, these things look really important. Paul said it this way, I counted it as rubbish. Peter is saying it's empty and futile. Don't hope in these things just because you're attached to them because they will not save you. Set them aside. Come over here. Come before God. Say, I have nothing to bring you. I need everything that you have to offer me, and I'm trusting in you only. That's the background for doing what Peter says in verse 17, conducting yourself in fear. You fear God. You don't fear your extended family who's going to say, hey, but, but this is the way we've always done things, and this is the things that are important to us as a family. To the extent that they contradict truth about God and who He is, you set them aside, and you're not afraid of them. You're not afraid of persecution. You're not afraid of punishment. You're not afraid of all those things. You fear God more, and you say, I may have the disapproval of my family if I reject the way that my family has taught me of following Catholicism or being a good personism or whatever other false religion characterized your life before you came to trust in Jesus. It doesn't matter that that's the way that the so-and-sos have lived and walked for however many generations. If that doesn't lead me to God, I cast it aside and I come over here and I receive the precious blood of Christ. And I trust in God only, not in myself. But in case the fact that Christ's blood is precious and Christ came specifically to bring you to faith in God alone are not sufficient motivations for you, what was the phrase in verse 17 that we didn't talk about? God who impartially judges according to each one's work. This is one of those things where it's really hard to stay at the biblical balance between faith and work and a biblical order for how faith and work looks. What tends to happen is we say, well, these people over here have said you work your way to heaven. So the correct response is to come way over here and say you don't work at all before you get to heaven. And that's where a lot of people are at in professing Christianity and society today. I prayed a prayer. I've got my ticket to heaven. I don't really care if Jesus is there when I show up because it's about getting to a place. But the biblical truth is not, 
I work my way to God because that's what pagan religions and hypocritical self-worship says. That's not the right response. And the right response is not to come over here and say, I can do whatever I want because it doesn't matter because as long as the box is checked, I'm getting in. The biblical balance is to say, I could not do anything. I set aside the empty way of life inherited from my forefathers and I receive the precious blood of Jesus. And because that is true and I'm trusting in God alone, then I'm going to live in the fear of God. And living in the fear of God does not mean everything in life stays the same. It in fact means pretty much everything in life changes. Because when I go to do something, the question that comes to my mind is not, do I want to do this? Which is the question most of us ask about everyday things all day long. Do I want to eat a bagel? Or do I want to maybe have some eggs? Because maybe the eggs are better for me than the bagel. Certainly probably better for me than three bagels, right? Do I want to do this? I don't feel like it. I'm going to have the bagel or the three bagels or the cinnamon roll or the whatever. Because that's what I want to do. The question that we should be asking all day long is not, do I want to do this? But what is pleasing to God? The fear of God means that I'm more concerned about God being pleased with me than I'm concerned about anything else in this world. If I'm in a situation where it seems like the easy way out is to lie, I don't say, what seems like it's going to work out best for me personally? I say, what would be pleasing to God? Because I fear God. If I come to a situation where here are good options of what to do, or, or I'm about to do something that's a good thing that I enjoy, I'm going to sit down and read a book. I'm going to go do some yard work. I'm going to go on a trip. And something comes up where someone... Um, and I have to be careful about this because I think there are people for whom they find it hard to say no to any opportunity to help out other people. But for most of us, if we come to a spot where it's like, here's this thing that I really want to do and here's this thing that I know I ought to do, we're going to tend to do the thing that we really want to do and not the thing that we ought to do. I know I should read my Bible and pray, but I would rather watch TV. I know that, which is not always inherently sinful, but it is most of the time a waste of time. I know that I should talk to my neighbor about Jesus, but I would rather take a nap. I know that I should spend time with my kids and raise my kids, but I'm tired because I've been busy all day. I know that any number of other things that could come to mind. Here are all the things that God calls you to do. And we tend to ignore those things because we don't fear God enough. We're not most concerned about what pleases God. We're most concerned about what pleases us. And that is all tied back into this empty and futile way of life that says, My God is a God that I can control. My God is a list of rules that I've established for myself. If you come here and receive the precious blood of Jesus and trust in God alone, what comes with it inevitably is that you have to fear the God who made you, because he's not just a God that you made, he made you. 
You don't get to set the rules, he sets the rules. And more important than rules is, do we really conceive of what sort of God it is that we claim to follow? If you call Father this God who made the world, if you call Father this God who commands hosts of armies, if you call Father this God who raised Jesus from the dead, He is good and loving, but he is also a God to be feared. If God impartially judges according to each one's work, then what we do in this life matters. And the only way that our work is going to be acceptable to him is if we come to him in the right way, through Jesus, not through the empty way of life passed down from our forefathers, through him alone, not God plus all these other things. Remembering the value of what we've received. Remembering the fact that God calls all of us into account. And constantly throughout each day asking ourselves this question, do I fear God? And is my fear of God demonstrated in this thing that I'm about to do or think or feel? If I, if I walk into a room and I feel afraid, is that because I'm worried about what people will think of me or what God thinks of me? If I have a situation that's frustrating at work and I respond in anger, is that because I'm concerned about what honors God or because my day got interrupted? We talked about the do, we talked about the feel. What about the think? If I love God, can I be thinking all day long about things and people other than God, with no thought of God? Not if I really have a relationship with Him. If I know God, can I think thoughts that are patterned after the pattern of this world? whether that is life is for yourself or you deserve this or whatever other sorts of lies the world around us tells us, if those are the things that are constantly running as the theme in the back of my mind, am I really fearing God? Is God your father? If God is your father, he is the judge who knows your work far better than any other person in this world then we should conduct ourselves in fear. Not a fear of punishment, because if we are in Jesus, Jesus has taken the punishment in our place. Not a fear of other people, because God is far greater than those people. But a fear of God himself that frees us to do what is pleasing to God, because God has become the most important one in the entire universe to us. Do you fear God? And not a fear God in an intellectual sense, like, oh yeah, God is great, so I should respect him. But do you conduct yourself in fear? Like, does the way that you live your life demonstrate that you actually fear God? Or does it just say that you say that you fear God? Because Peter is setting up this if. You said God's your father. 
Does your life show that he is your father and that you respect him as your father and that you obey him as your father? Because you can say, God is my father, and if you're over here doing whatever you want, it shows that one of two things is not true. Either he's not really your father or you're not a very good son or daughter. To the extent that you're not a very good son or daughter, the prodigal son came back to his father and received forgiveness. To the extent that God's not your father, the only way to come to him as your father is through Jesus and what he's done. So, if God is your father, children of God live in fear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths. I think there's a lot of moments in my life when I'm not asking myself that question of, is what I'm about to do consistent with a fear of God? I think that's where a lot of us probably are because it's far easier to think about questions like, what do I feel? What do I want? What is easiest? What am I used to? So it's hard work to say, what pleases God? But to the extent that we know and love you, Lord, I pray that we would grow in our love for you, that you would give us the strength to do these things, not as a burden, not as a not as a drudgery, but in parallels, if we had good fathers, we want to please them. We should want to please you. And to the extent that we actually love you, it's not a burden, but it's a joy to live in a way that honors you. But sometimes the starting point is just getting to that point of obedience at all. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to obey, but that you would also help us to love you so that the obedience does not seem like a chore or a frustration or a overwhelming obligation but it just becomes a natural and a right response because we really know you and we really love you and you are a God. If we can catch sight of how amazing the blessings you have given us in salvation are, then perhaps we will be better equipped to live for you the way that we ought. Lord, if there's someone here who's never begun to follow after you, whether they've grown up in church or heard lots of messages from the Bible or know nothing at all, whatever their case, Lord, bring them to trust in you. And if we know and trust you, may it be clear from our lives that that is in fact true. If we call you our Father, Help us to live our lives in proper fear of you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.